0: Happy Lord's Day is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. We are going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 9 through 12 today. Verses 9 through 12. Remember, Paul spent the first three chapters of this book writing about how thankful he is for the Thessalonians. He opens the book in chapter 1 and he says, I want to give thanks to God for your faith, your love, and your hope. And he has sort of been just gushing over how wonderful the Thessalonians are ever since And he wants to assure them that they are indeed in Christ. You see that in verse 4. He wants them to know that they are loved and chosen by God. And so he lays out his argument. He says, I know that you have received the gospel because you heard our words, not as the words of mere men, but as what they really are, the word of God. You received the word of God, and it is at work in you. And therefore, you can know that you are in the Lord. And I'm so thankful that you're in him. My ministry among you together with Timothy and Silas was not in vain because the word has done its work. The word has grown up in you. Paul even confesses towards the front end of chapter 3 that he was worried because they had to leave the Thessalonians so quickly. They had only been there a month or so. And how were the Thessalonians to survive amidst the pressing of the persecution on them? But what he found was when Timothy came back, There were tidings of comfort and joy that indeed the Thessalonians had persevered in the faith and now he closed chapter 3 by talking about how he longs to see the Thessalonians face to face. Then at the beginning of chapter 4, we have the shift, and we started into the shift last week. So Paul is finally done spending more than half the book giving thanks for the Thessalonians, saying, you guys are awesome, and now he gets practical, he gets concrete. He says, here are some things I want you to do. I want you to know what the will of the Lord is for you, and I want you to know that by doing the will of the Lord, you can please him. That you please God not as the means by which you grab hold of salvation. No, 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 no. That you live to please God because you have been adopted into his family. You live to please God because you have been given salvation. You want to please your good and heavenly father. And so that's the first command that sort of hangs over the rest of the book really there in verse 1 of chapter 4. Walk and please God. Paul gets more specific, he says, this is the will of God for you, your holiness, that you would live distinct from the world. And he has a few things in mind. First, and we talked about this last week, was sexual holiness, sexual purity. Next is holy love or brotherly love, and then after that is holy work. We'll talk about those two things this week, and then in the future, next week we'll talk about holy waiting, and that's really going to take up most of the rest of the book. All of that is set up. Our main idea this morning will be this, uh, brotherly love works. Brotherly love works hard at love, and brotherly love works hard at work. We'll be in verses 9 through 12. So with that said, would you stand with me in the honor of reading God's holy and perfect word? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Starting with verse 9. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And yet we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. May he carve its eternal truth on our hearts. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ was crucified for sins and was raised for our justification. We thank you that you, O Lord, have highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to your glory. We pray as we confess that truth again this morning, that Christ's work would be worked out in us. Pray that love would abound more and more among us with all knowledge and discernment so that we might approve that which is excellent and so be pure and holy for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of you, our God. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. Forget for a moment that Paul is, in fact, writing them, and he will, in fact, write to them about brotherly love. And just focus on the fact that he is encouraging them in what they are already doing. It must have been a wonderful thing, this is one of Paul's earliest letters, to write to a church to offer primarily words of encouragement. If you read through the other epistles in the New Testament, there is a lot of stuff going on. No one in Thessalonica is calling Paul illegitimate. Nobody's calling him ugly and bald and weak and not a great speaker. Nobody is saying that circumcision is required to be a part of the church. Uh, no one is sleeping with their stepmother. Paul is, is writing to them not to correct them, but to encourage them primarily and to give them further instruction that they might walk out the Christian life more and more. And it, I mean, this book, it's just encouragement all the way down. And I know we've made this application a few times now, but I think it's important we need to be a people who are dedicated to encouraging one another. More and more. We need to look for evidence of grace in one another's lives. We're not try and catch each other doing good so that we might build one another up. No one is suffering from too much encouragement. You can give it generously and it will help to build a culture of brotherly love among us it will increase your affection for one another when you are looking for the good rather than the bad i'm not saying we don't call attention to sin and we don't correct one another in love what i am saying is that we ought to focus on god's work in and among us that we might encourage one another the church can always use more cheerleaders I want to be cheerleaders friends want to cheer one another on in the faith. I want to tell one another that, that we love one another and we, we love what the Lord is doing in our lives. It's one of the things I have appreciated about uh, getting to know Mr. Jimmy a little bit. If you've ever had a conversation, he's going to tell you, he's going to say, let me tell you this, and then he's going to tell you something. But I think I've never had a conversation with Mr. Jimmy, that I left at the end not feeling more encouraged than when it started. Particularly, like, he always ends every conversation, he says, you know, I love you. And yeah, I love you too. Unless, you know, I don't think that's awkward at all. I mean, it's not something dudes normally say to each other. But it's good. It's encouraging. You could use a few more Mr. Jimmys. Use a few more Cheerleaders. In our midst, Paul is a cheerleader for the Thessalonians. He is saying, you are walking, you are like young children taking your first steps, that two-year-old, and sure, you're going to fall over and stumble, but I'm not going to make fun of you for that. You're so dumb. No, no, He said, keep going, keep walking, get yourself on balance, do it more and more. This is great. We have no need to write to you. That's an interesting thing for him to say as he writes to them. This says, we have no need to write to you about brotherly love specifically because, and he gives two reasons here. One, and we're going to return to this one, is you have been taught by God to love one another. And secondly, it's the second reason, verse 10 says, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, as they treated not only those brothers in their midst, but also the brothers in their region, that's Macedonia, well word spread. One of the things that was happening is they were helping to support other Christians economically, which is a very good thing, but as we'll see, it also becomes a problematic thing for the church, as some take advantage of it. But I want to return to this idea. Don't, we don't have any need to write to you because you are living out your faith. You're loving the brothers, and you're loving them financially in particular. But he also says because you have been God-taught. That's a really interesting word because Paul made it up. In Greek, he takes the word for, for God, and he takes the word for teaching, and he just sort of smashes them together. It's striking. What, what does that mean? You've been God-taught, taught by God. Well, it doesn't mean that everybody in the church at Thessalonica has their own private revelation from the Lord, such that they don't need any instruction from anyone Ever. Right, They've been taught by God, and so now they don't need Paul and the other apostles. They can just continue to be taught by God more and more. This letter stands opposed to that idea. So what, what does it mean? And I would like to suggest to you that being God-taught means hearing the word of the Lord, receiving the word of the Lord, and then having the word of the Lord put to work in you by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us ears to hear God's word and hands to do God's word. It is the Holy Spirit who writes God's word on our hearts. Let me justify this position from the text. It says, you've been taught by the Lord. And I think what he means is, you've been taught by the Lord through us, bringing his word to you by way of the Holy Spirit. And so we'll flip the page back and we'll look at verse 13 of chapter 2. And he says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So you can see that the word and the spirit are working together there. Here in verse, it verse two, you see, Of chapter 4, he says, you know what instructions that we gave you through the Lord Jesus? And you look down in verse 11, the back end of verse 11, same chapter, as we instructed you. You see, the way that they are being God taught is by hearing the word of God taught to them and applied to them by the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 of chapter 4. Right before our section, therefore, this is on the teaching of sexual immorality, whoever disregards this, that's the teaching, disregards not man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So so here is the point. The Holy Spirit is the one who is enabling the Thessalonians to hear the word of God as what it really is, the word of God. Apart from God the Holy Spirit working in us, we cannot be God-taught. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in you, you cannot know God and you cannot understand the Word of God. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us eyes to see. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us understand and learn the Word of God. Similarly, it is the Holy Spirit who enables us to put the Word of God into practice in our lives. Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we seek to please God by obeying his word, which is taught to us by God, by means of teachers who faithfully teach the word. And we're able to understand that faithful teaching because of God the Holy Spirit at work in us. Friends, we want to be a church that is God taught. And that means not that we isolate ourselves out in the wilderness and light candles and empty our minds and try to have some special revelation from God. No, no, what it means is we assemble here together around the word of God. That we hold up the faithful teaching of God's word and we submit ourselves to it. That we pray to God to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand. That he would put the word to work in us. And so that's why we do things we do in our service. We want to put the word of God front and center. We call ourselves to worship by the word of God. We give ourselves to the reading of God's word, to the preaching of God's word, to the singing of God's word. All of it is so that we can hear from God and be God-taught, so that we wouldn't hear just the words of men, but the word of God. Friends, the word and the Holy Spirit are not opposed to one another. In fact, they're married They drive everywhere together, go on vacation together. Where you find the word, you find the Holy Spirit. And where you find the Holy Spirit at work, you find God's word. And where you find the two together, if you're understanding them, you are being God taught. So let's pray that God would be the one teaching us when we assemble together here and as we give ourselves to his word Let's pray that his spirit would help us to understand his word, to understand those things which are spiritually discerned and to put them into practice. The Thessalonians are taught by the spirit through the instruction of the apostles and by the example of Christ. You'll recognize the context in which they are God-taught is in relationship to their brotherly love. And what a better example... What better example of brotherly love is there than the Lord Jesus? What did Jesus say towards the end of his life in John 13, 34? This is one most of us know. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, This commandment is not really new, we could say, to Jesus, right? You've just picked it up from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor, love one another, and now you're making an application of it to us. So I think as good readers, we go, what's new? What's new about this commandment is not the call to love one another, but the manner with which we love one another. Jesus says, those who follow him are to love one another, quote, Just as I have loved you. Well, how has Jesus loved us, brothers and sisters? He has loved us to the grave. He has loved us to the cross. Jesus Christ gave himself for us, his condemned bride. While we were living godless lives, God-hating lives... Jesus Christ came to save us. While we were committing spiritual adultery, Jesus Christ remained committed to his people. Christian, when you would have gladly driven nails through the hands of Jesus, he was there holding his arms wide open to you, bidding you come and rest. We, friends... All of us, every man, woman, and child who has ever lived, deserve eternal chains. We deserve an eternal crucifixion for our sins. That is what justice would bring to us. Yet God in his mercy, God in his mercy sent the Lord Jesus Christ to live the life we should have lived, die the death we should have died, And raise up from the dead so that everyone who trusts in him has his life credited to them. So that God looks at you, if your faith is in Christ and you're united to Christ, and says, This is my beloved son, my beloved daughter, with whom I am well pleased. Your sins are forgiven. That's the good news. That Jesus Christ could have rightfully come as he will the second time. When he comes again, he will come to eradicate all evil. He will come with a sword in his hand on horseback and a tattoo on his thigh. He will come to bring God's right wrath and right judgment against all sin and all wickedness and all evil. And he will put it to death once and for all. He could have come the first time like that. He could have brought the sword down on you and me. But instead, he came humble, born in a manger. He came humble and gentle and lowly, riding on a donkey. He made himself lower than a slave or a servant. He took upon his brow the crown of thorns. He mounted up the cross and rode it into the grave. No one took his life from him. He laid it down on his own accord for his people. He laid his life down for his bride. He laid his life down for whoever will repent of their sin and come to him. Non-Christian, if that's you today, this is what love is. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us. Now Christian, you can know the God you were made for. You can have your sins forgiven. If you will lay down your rebellion, if you will bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, He will give you life and life abundant. This is how He has loved His people. This is how Jesus loves all who have faith in him. He loved us to the depths of the grave and to the heights of the sky. Jesus died so that we could die to sin. He is risen so that we can be free from death. He lives and rules and reigns right now so that we can walk in the newness of life. This is deep, deep love. What's the old old song say? What love is this? Amazing pity, grace unknown, love beyond degree. This is the brotherly love of the Lord Jesus Christ for you and I. Church, in light of Jesus' example of brotherly love, could verse 9 be written of us? There's no need for anyone to write to you. Are we loving one another like that? I think sometimes when we talk about love in church because it's talked about so often, we easily dismiss it as something sort of squishy and easy that we've already talked about. We've already already got that licked, so we don't need to think about it anymore. Yeah, we get it. Uh, Love one another. What's what's next? Do you have something something more in depth for me? I want to learn more. Friends, love is foundational. Philadelphia, you know more Greek words. I tell you this every week. You know more Greek words than you think you know. Philadelphia means brotherly love. It's a Greek word for brotherly love. That's why, city of brotherly love. But Philadelphia is foundational for the church. It's fundamental to who we are and how we are to relate with one another. How are we doing it? In Philadelphia, is hard work. Brotherly love is hard work. And just so we're clear, brotherly love here, sort of generic masculine again, we talked about it a few weeks ago, it includes sisterly love. So you're not off the hook, sisters, you have to love the brothers, right? It's a family love, a love that is committed to one another through all the trials and tears and triumphs of life. Family love, brotherly love is committed, and it is hard work. It's hard work that Paul's calling us to here. He's saying you, you have to be committed to doing the hard love of loving other sinners and other people. You are to have a familial, a brotherly love, one for another. I mean, brotherly love is hard. I have to look no further. I have six kids, but the four of them are boys, and they fight each other all the time. I mean, all the time. A few weeks ago, I mean, we had just been here a couple days, and I remember Chelsea holding the two younger ones were trying to fist fight in the pew, stretched out, holding one, going after the other. Sometimes at bedtime, they're, they're after each other. You have to go up in the night and say, if you guys don't stop fighting each other, I'm going to fight both of you. And I'll win, at least for now. They're going to get bigger eventually. But they fight each other hard. One minute. But then all the other minutes, they're, they're best friends. They're willing to outlast and endure all those little tiffs and snafus because of their love for one another. It reminds me of an old Keith Whitley song, 1991, for those of you keeping track. This is what he writes. It's a country one, too, so maybe you know it. It says, We share the same last name and the same color eyes, but we fight like tigers over that old red bike. I'm batting first, and you can't use my glove. It wouldn't take long before push came to shove, but we looked out for each other with brotherly love. What am I getting at here? Well, like Barry White, right? Love ain't easy. Love ain't easy. And I actually think one of the highest expressions of Christian love, of brotherly love, is in our commitment to stay together, to reconcile when we have differences. Brotherly love's r- love refuses not to reconcile, it outlasts and it overcomes grudges and hatreds and hurt feelings. We want to be a people who are committed to reconciling with one another. I'm certain in any church and even in our church that some of you have relationships that are strained. That Some of you have people in this room right now who are sitting apart from you You'll smile and you'll wave at each other. But inside you're thinking, oh, bless their heart. That's no good, friend. That is sin. As John Owen said, we must be killing sin or it will be killing us. Brotherly love repents. Brotherly love forgives. Brotherly love goes to the brother or sister at fault and tells them their fault. You hurt me when it seeks to reconcile. It's Matthew 18. That's what it tells us to do. Jesus tells us to do this. And Peter, thinking himself righteous, says, Oh, so I should forgive my brother like seven times. Lord, that'd be great. And Jesus says, No, not exactly. Seven times. 77 times. Jesus is saying, as many times as he repents, forgive, reconcile. Friends, we want a culture at our church of repentance and reconciliation and forgiveness. Culture is the embodiment of values. And if we are a church who holds on to grudges against one another, a church that refuses to reconcile, well, then we are making ourselves a false church. We are no more than hypocrites holding on to our sins and refusing to obey the Lord Jesus. Well, I couldn't forgive him. I couldn't forgive her. We couldn't reconcile. That is arrogance. That is disobedience. Disobedience to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Loved ones, who do you need to reconcile with this week? Maybe it's even somebody who's around your Thanksgiving table. I always say don't talk religion or politics at Thanksgiving. You should talk. Definitely about religion. Maybe pursue some reconciliation. After all, the old hymn is right. They'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Will they? Will anyone conclude that from your life and your relationships? We have all the resources we need to live with brotherly love. We have the bond of the Holy Spirit. We have the blood, we have the bread, we have the water, we have the word. Just as I have loved you, Jesus says, you are to love one another. And we're committed to this as a church. If you're a member here, you have committed to this. There's a line in the covenant, you'll have to listen for it next time, it says, we will support the members of this church in Christian love. We'll support the members of this church in brotherly love. First Baptist Church, let us be a people who keep our word. Let's be a reconciling people. People committed to Philadelphia as one of our foundations. People that you know, sings with Sister Sledge. We are family Let's enjoy being together. God has bound us together as his children. Jesus is our brother. Let us lay down our lives one for another and let us do this more and more. This is really the primary command there in chapter 10. Paul saying, love one another more and more. And then he's going to give us uh, the manner with which we are to love one another more and more. He's getting, he's getting more specific. Look with me at verse 11. We urge you, brothers to do this more and more. Verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So there are three things or three characteristics that Paul wants to mark the Thessalonians. An ambition for peaceful living, a focus on one's own work, and earning an honest living. The first one is a little bit odd. It says a quiet life. A quiet life is not about volume, but about character. Living a quiet life doesn't mean that you're never involved in any controversy. It does mean that you are not a cantankerous sort of person. That you are not out, what do they say, stirring the pot. But no, your goal is to plod along and live peacefully and ordinarily. The quiet life person gets up in the morning... Goes about their work, loves their family, loves their church, and does it over and over again day after day. I think Jesus lived a quiet life. I was thinking about it this week. Often we think of Jesus' whole life, and we should, most of it, right? What we're told about is those last years of his ministry. All sorts of things are happening. We have a, a verse in Luke, though, that tells us about the majority of his life. Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. No drama, nothing spectacular, at least nothing that's recorded for us. Just ordinary faith and obedience. Jesus honored his parents, worked at the carpentry shop with Joseph, his father, loved God, and loved people. If you want to be like Jesus, make it your goal, your ambition, to live a plodding and ordinary Christian life. Don't look at the Christian life as, I have to always have something happening Now, friends, look at it as a long obedience in the same direction, day after day, resolving to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Paul calls people in Thessalonica and you and I to live quiet lives, lives that are peaceful and obedient. He also wants us to give ourselves to a diligent life. That's what I'm taking from Mind Your Own Affairs or Mind Your Own Business. This is some people's favorite verse. They, they, they misunderstand it and they say, you know, oh, you want me to join a church? Mind your own business. You want to stick your nose in my sin? Mind your own business. That's what the Bible says. Leave me alone. That's not what this means. We all understand there's a difference between Christian love that cares and, I guess this is the word today, cantankerousness. There's a difference between caring for somebody and being nosy and being all up in their business. But one seeks the good of the other, whereas the the nosiness, well, it's seeking controversy or a bit of gossip. Uh, Minding your own business, we know from the context, this is a letter written to them, he just told them to exercise brotherly love for one another. It doesn't mean silo-Christianity, it doesn't mean Lone Ranger Christianity, it means uh, Christianity that focuses on its own work rather than grumbling about the work given to others or sticking its nose in the work of others. It's a Christianity that avoids the what-about-him syndrome. You know what this is, the what-about-him syndrome. When you look at what someone else is doing, and you look at what you're doing, and what about him? I would do this, but what about them? I'll give you an example. My children are getting roped into a lot of things today. Uh, But in my house, we have something called diligence work. We give chores to our children. That's what we call the chores, diligence work. So they've got to, like, you know, sweep the floors, make their beds, put dishes away, things like that. And so we will say pretty regularly, all right, do your diligence work. And sometimes this becomes the source of great controversy, as one might expect. Particularly if one child believes that the other child has gotten the easier task, we will hear, well, what about him? He's not doing anything. He's not doing his job right. His job is easier than mine. What about him? And what about the baby? She just eats and sleeps. I threw the baby thing in there. They haven't tried that one yet. But they're worried, not about their own diligence and their own work. They're not minding their own business. They're worried about what everybody else is doing. Sowing conflict. I would wager that my children are not the only ones who suffer from what about him syndrome. How easy it is for us to look at our lot in life, to look at what God has called us to do, and then look across to that greener grass in someone else's yard and say, what about him, Lord? What about what you've called them to? You know, One of my favorite examples of what about him syndrome comes in John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Peter is being restored by Jesus. Famously, Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Three times, Peter says yes. Three times, Jesus says, feed my sheep, take care of my sheep, some variation of that. We're going to pick up in verse 17 midway through. When Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This Jesus said to show Peter by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, Peter has just been told, take care of my church, feed my sheep. And guess what? Your ministry is going to end with you being carried somewhere you do not want to go. It's going to be bad. But you follow me. That's your task. And Peter says, but what about him? Look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following them the one who also had leaned back against Jesus during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I think this is something... All of us need to hear from the Lord from time to time. He has business that He has given to us that we are to attend ourselves to. And we are to attend to it diligently without grumbling and without envying the person across the way from us. We are to recognize that God has called us to specific tasks. And it is our responsibility to do them diligently to His glory. Not to grumble. Not to stick our noses in the business of others. To mind our own business. To do our own diligence work. This sort of a progression. Paul's, all of this has to do with work. And so he's building now to the third and final characteristic, which is work with your own hands. We've said it this way, earn an honest living. Paul's not telling us that We all have to pick up blue-collar jobs. Now, he wants the Thessalonians to do work so that they can support themselves and be dependent on no one. That's verse 12. One of the purposes of this work is that they would not be financially dependent on anyone but their own selves. More on that in a moment. But right now, he's calling them to work. He calls us to work because slothfulness is sinfulness. Laziness offends God. Idleness is unbecoming of Christians. Paul writes about this again in the second letter to the Thessalonians. Chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Because we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul calling them to work here is about, he doesn't want them to take advantage of the church So the Thessalonians have been providing economically for brothers in the region who have been destitute, providing economically for those who really are in need in their number, widows and orphans, and some have been taking advantage of that. And Paul is saying, no, 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 you need to work. The lazy, friends, act as parasites on the body of Christ. The parasite sloths in the Thessalonian church suck the life out of things. They do the opposite of Philippians 2. Philippians 2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others, These slothful folks that are taking advantage of the church, well, they do everything from selfishness and self-love. In arrogance, they consider themselves more significant than everyone else. They look to their own interests and take advantage of the work and the benevolence of others. This is sin. Saints, slothfulness is sin. The reason there's the old saying about Protestant work ethic is because good hard work honors God. All of us are called to all sorts of work. Some of us professionally, some of us are homemakers, and some of us are children. But all of us have jobs that we are to set our hands to Things that we are to do unto the glory of the Lord. And when we are lazy and we don't do those things and we just sit around, probably, you probably, probably haven't seen the kids' show Stinky and Dirty, but they're cars. And, and when the cars aren't doing anything, some of the kids are like, yes, Stinky and Dirty. When the cars aren't doing anything, they'll sit there and they just go, idle, 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 idle. Really annoying. My kids do it Sometimes. But what the Lord is saying, Christians don't just sit there and go, idle, 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 idle. Christians are loving one another. And part of the way that we love one another is by working hard. In Thessalonica, it's working hard to be financially independent. Paul calls us, if we are able-bodied and have the opportunity to work, to work says pretty strongly, the one who doesn't work doesn't eat. So friends, we want to commit ourselves working. So plow, build, create. Brotherly love works hard. It refuses to take advantage of its family. Verse 12, that, that second purpose there, be dependent on no one. Again, not a call to isolated Christianity. It's a call to financial independence. Again, obviously, there are caveats here. There are people who really are in need that really do need benevolence, not talking to you if that's you. Talking to the people that would take advantage of that. That's who Paul is speaking to. We want to be financially independent. If God has given us the ability and the opportunity to work, we must work and work well. You also notice the second reason, or it's really the first reason in verse 12, that Paul says we need to work as instructed is, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Remember, this verb walk is showing up a few times. It's here in verse 12. If you go all the way back to verse 1, you see, walk and please God. He's he's telling them how they ought to walk and please God. And now down here, he's talking about work so that you may walk properly before outsiders. What does he mean? He's saying there is a way that Christians live that fits their identity as Christians, and there is a way that you can live that is out of step with that. Walking properly can commend the gospel to others. How you live can sweeten somebody to the aroma of Christ or sour them to it. Did you know, Christian brother or Christian sister, that how you work impacts the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ? It does. Good work is a good witness. It protects Jesus' reputation. It protects his reputation. It commends the gospel to others. How is your work? When someone looks at your life and your work ethic, your character, are they going to think well of Jesus? There are limits, of course, Jesus says, that the world will hate you from following me, so there are limits here. But I think you get the point. Does your life commend Christianity to others? We are to be not parasites, not sloths, but workhorses, or to obey God, to work hard, work hard at loving one another through our work. Follow the example of Christ Jesus. John writes of, of Christ and of the love of God in First John chapter four, verses 9 through 11. "In this is the love of God. It's how it was manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Brothers and sisters, let us walk in a manner that fits us as Christians. Let's work hard at loving one another. And let's work hard at working hard. Brotherly love works hard and holy in order to please God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have loved us, that we can call you Father because of the work of Christ, he died for our sins, and was raised to new life. We thank you that you have called us out of the world, into your church, and on to mission. And indeed, you have given us the mission of representing you among the nations. We are to be a people who exemplify the character of Christ. A people who proclaim the word of Christ. A people who are known for worshiping Christ. What a great privilege this is. We pray that we would not take it for granted. We pray that we would not sully the name of Christ, but bring it glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.